I'm Dr. Jill Weiner. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, along with some of my own insights and explorations on topic ranging from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice and beyond. In order to provide a nuanced, educational, and honest examination of systemic racism and dominant culture. I am so excited to have Kelly Hurst here with me today. She is an anti-racist disruptor and equity strategist. She has worked for 23 years in uh, K-12 as a teacher and administrator. She's been doing anti-racism work since 2012 with Crossroads Anti-Racism Organizing and Training. And she uh, has been with the SIU School of Medicine um, as an equity strategist. And I am fortunate enough to be able to work with her as a facilitator um, in an equity program. So, um, and she's just the best and just drops the knowledge all the time and, and uh, the whole, everyone's speechless when, when she speaks. So um, Kelly, thank you so much for joining. I'm honored. Oh, thank you, Jill, for saying that. It's nice to, to know that I make people speechless in a good way and not in a, <laughs> oh my gosh, do you hear what she's saying? <laughs> There, I mean, there's so many amazing people in, in that group of facilitators with us, um, and you kind of never know like whose turn it's going to be to like mm-hmm. just blow everyone away. Um, mm-hmm. But it's often you. So tell um, tell us tell me a little bit about yourself and um, kind of your 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 background. What got you into this work? Um, and uh, you got your start in education. So maybe talk a little bit about your experience there. Sure. Um, so originally, I am from Chicago. I am a Southsider. And um, all Southsiders have to proudly say they're Southsiders. <laughs> uh, because the South Side of Chicago gets forgotten. And I grew up in a very multicultural, multi-ethnic place that was really deliberate on the part of my parents. And I'm very thankful that they did that. Um, so my dad is black. He's from New Orleans. My mom is white. She is from South Dakota and they met in Chicago and got married and said, we want our children to live in a place where they're not the only ones. Mm -hmm. So we went to Catholic school during the day. And then we went to the Jewish community center after school to learn to keep kosher. Um, I went to many, many bar and bat mitzvahs and learned to pray and, um, uh, like we did, like they had the very best after school activities and it was, it was like nothing. It was like, yeah, this is, this is totally what we do. And then in the summer we went to a babysitter who was Mexican, uh, named Velma. And my mom said, please, please teach, like speak Spanish to the girls, let them like learn Spanish. And I thought everybody had that experience, Jill. I thought everybody's childhood was like that. I thought, oh, look at all of these people that we know and look at all of these you know, various religions and all kinds of ways of being. And then I realized that is not true. Um, And my understanding of race actually came pretty early, uh, earlier than it really should have. So I was four and I was with my dad. Um, And if if the people are listening on the podcast, they can Google and see how light-skinned I am. So, uh, so they can get an idea of what this story might uh, entail because I was with my dad who's black 
And um, as a baby, I was very, very light skinned. As a matter of fact, when I was born, the nurse told my mom, uh, there's no such thing as mixed race and uh, that baby's white. So my birth certificate says white because, you know, we're, we live in a race-based society that loves, like we, we stamp it on your birth certificate as soon as you get popped out, right? Um, and the nurse knows better than you. Right. And then, and then we pretend for the rest of your life that we don't care about race. <laughs> so um, while I was with my dad, uh, there was a white woman who came up to us and we were getting ice cream. It was like a special time and I was on his shoulders. So her face was really, really close to, to mine. I remember like her, I, her face is burned into my brain and uh, she was yelling at my dad and screaming and pointing at me and asking him where he stole me from. Right. And I remember we, I remember being confused and also scared and we turned around and left. And I remember being like, well, first of all, I'm pissed because we don't have ice cream, number one. First of all. <laughs> first of all. And number two, what, who is this lady? Like, does my dad know her? Like, what, what's the deal? Um, we never talked about it. It just kind of became a thing that we didn't talk about. And she was the first of many, 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 many white women who did this. Mm. It was either, where did you steal this baby from? Or asking me directly, do you need help from this black man? Did he kidnap you? Are you safe? Would you like me to call the police? And I think that what that did was, I know what it did was it began to shape me mm. and it shaped me in a way that taught me that white women are dangerous. And um, in learning that white women are dangerous, um, I began to avoid white women. Now, like I had white friends, right? White kids, white girls and boys that were my friends, but white women in public, uh-uh, I stayed away from them because they have and have to this day, the power to kill me if they want. If they think I don't belong, uh, they have the power to call the police and have me killed. And we know this, this continues to happen over and over and over. Um, and so that really shaped me in thinking about like, how do I walk through the world looking like I do? Um, as light-skinned as I am, I often get um, ethnically ambiguous or I get, what's funny is, you know, when I would go to temple, nobody ever questioned it because I have really curly hair. Um, and so and if I knew how to pray, nobody ever said anything, right? Um, that was actually a safe place for me. Uh, we went to a multiracial church, so that was a safe place for me. Um, in, the, in the Mexican neighborhood, if I spoke Spanish, that was a safe place. For, right. like, like, think about how many places like I could be sort of a chameleon. Um, so anyway, what I, what I used to do was I used to not talk about it and um, be very offended when someone would say something racial in front of me. And now what I do is if I'm in a group of strangers, I tell them right away, just so you know. I am not a white woman because I don't want you to reveal your racism to me on accident. And I don't want to have to cuss you out because you're a total stranger to me. So just so you know, I say it right away. Um, so when I went into education and I moved to Springfield, um, which is like not very diverse, people here uh, are, grew up with very homogenous you know, upbringings. Mm -hmm. And I started to pay attention and notice all of the racism in school systems. I thought, well, you know what? Uh, in my classroom, the things that I notice is 
uh, I notice who gets in trouble the most. Uh, and sometimes, I'm going to be honest, Jill, sometimes I perpetuated that. And sometimes I perpetuated and said the same things that I overheard other people saying, right? Those stereotypes that get inside of us, um, those beliefs that we start to say, um, and that self-hatred that, that creeps in, right? So I would hear people say things like, you know, we could never get our Black parents to come in for parent-teacher conferences because they don't care about their kids, mm. right? And that was just common knowledge in the teacher's lounge. And that was just common parlance in, in anywhere you went. And then I would start saying it. And I, I went to my first middle school and I remember hearing, we had two guidance counselors, one black and one white. As a matter of fact, that still is the way everything is run here. There's one black and one white. We're real binary here. Hmm. And um, I remember hearing, if you ever need anything, go to the white one. Don't go to the black one. She doesn't know how to do anything. She doesn't know how to run the master schedule. She doesn't know how to help you. Like she's just like, doesn't know anything. And I started repeating that to new teachers coming in the building. I'd be like, just so you know, go to her and not her. Not, not even critically like thinking about it. So I want to fast forward like 10 years when I decided to go back to school and get a master's degree and become a school principal. And at my very first position, uh, I was a guidance dean. And um, that position that I got into, there was actually multiples because it was a high school. And so we had a lot of us. It was uh, another black man and me, and then three white people in our office. And what happened was we were not taught how to run the master schedule. And we were not invited into conversations on how to do some things. And so guess what people said about me? That you don't know how to run the master schedule. Don't go to Kelly. She doesn't know how to do this. Don't, don't, don't ask her anything. Like the same thing I did mm-hmm. came right around to bite me in the ass. And it was one of those moments of real clarity of, first of all, what have you done? What did you perpetuate? And what has now come to bear? And Also, how do you undo this? Because now people are saying, you only got that job because of affirmative action, right? Like that's the only reason you have that job. And so it began to solidify my relationship with with, um, the black man in the office. Like we became very good friends and still are to this day because we were like, we're gonna learn this and they are not gonna get the best of us. Um, And we're gonna like, we're gonna spur each other on. We're gonna make sure we know this. And that actually is still a thing. Like I have a lot of really great relationships with black administrators in the school district because we have to look out for one another because the white ones are not. It's, it's very odd. Um, and probably very, it just happens everywhere. Can, can you speak to that standard that you might've been, that you were held up to, but like, was it actually that you knew less than them because they weren't teaching it to you? Or did they just say that you knew less to them? Like, Cause you're like the most capable person ever. So was it just like, they expected you to be twice as good and you weren't twice as good. You were as good, I, you know, like, like that, mm. that perfectionism standard that comes up that like black people have to be twice as good to. Right. Right. So it doesn't start yeah. off that way. I, I hear what you're asking. So it doesn't start off that way. It started off where I really didn't know. Okay. Right. Because I don't know how to run this system. Okay. So I'm doing a new job. 
and there's a it's a computer system and so when someone drops a class how do I put a, the new class in like what how do you do this so you literally and just but you weren't taught. literally did not know was not taught there's yeah. no class yeah. I remember asking I'm like is there a manual for this because it was one of those it was a program that was an internal program that our our internal folks wrote and so I was like so it's not like a program we bought from somewhere outside that someone could come in and teach. Yeah. That meant that people inside the district knew how to do it. And so they held all of the knowledge. They held all of the power over that and didn't have to teach us wow. if they didn't want to, um, or we'd get really frustrated. And so then I got to the point where I was like, now I have to know twice as much. Mm. Now I have to know. I'm not just going to know how to do it. I'm going to try to be better than you because now my reputation is in the toilet because people think I don't know how to do anything. That's, that's how it starts. Like that's yeah. the progression of it right there. Okay. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. And, and for yeah. sharing your experience with that. Um, and, and also for being honest about or vulnerable about your own perpetuating the stereotypes, um, which it's so interesting for me to hear you talking about that now because the truth that comes out of your mouth and the wisdom that comes out of your mouth is so powerful and profound every time. And it's so, I think for anyone listening who is ashamed of what they've done or, or, or thought or, or not understood, um, just to know that the culture in the system, I mean, maybe I, I won't even give that conclusion. What, what would you say? <laughs> what would you say to someone who, who's going, like, how did you get yourself through that realization and, and what advice do you have in mm. that scenario? So what, what a fantastic, like we could go so deep with this um, and it is really deep. And that, um, that idea of how do you get to a place of vulnerability to see what, like, how have I contributed to the system? Yeah. Um, I think that my first realization of how I've contributed was around uh, disciplining students because when then I became an assistant principal and, and APs usually do all the discipline. And of course, then I started noticing trends, right? Mm -hmm. You know, 13% of our students are black. And some days I would go down to the um, detention room or in-house and 100% of the kids in there would be black. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, how does, this, how does this work? Like the numbers are not adding up, this is wrong which meant when people, when teachers would send students to my office with a referral and the expectation was I would punish, I would, I would dole out the discipline. If I just did it, if I was like, yep, you did this thing, here's your, here, go along and do it. That's me perpetuating the system. I'm not questioning, I'm not asking what's going on. So once I finally realized it was a student that said to me, you know, he was sitting behind me as I was typing up his like discipline. And he said, you know, I'm going to tell you the truth. I did the thing it says on that referral that I did. I did it. I'm not going to lie to you. And there's three white kids in class doing the same thing right now. And none of them are down here. Mm. They're all still in class. I want you to know that. And he just knocked the wind out of me. Yeah. Just sucked all the air out of the room to say, it's not that I... It's not that I have this behavior, which by the way, is developmentally appropriate. <laughs> like sixth graders throw pencils. <laughs> it's what they do. You know, like they can be jerks. I love you sixth graders, but you like, <laughs> it's what they do. Yeah. It's that 
educators often allow white children to be children and, and allow their behaviors to happen and do not punish their behaviors. And it stopped me. And I, in that moment, I stopped everything. And I said, you know what? <laughs> We're not doing this. We're not doing this. Uh, I, why don't you just finish the rest of the hour in my office? And uh, I'll go talk to the teacher after this. So I became the um, administrator who would not punish. <laughs> <laughs> if you sent a student to my office who like didn't have a pencil, I, I would get like full paragraphs from teachers. Like, by the way, you got to take time out of your instruction to write a referral on a child who doesn't, does not have a pencil. And so I would be like, oh, you don't have a pencil or a pen here. Yeah. Take this back to class. There you go. And I would just rip up the referral, right? <laughs> How hard is this? This is not hard. Why are we taking our time to do this? And um, unfortunately, what happened was then my reputation was Kelly doesn't support teachers. When really what I was doing was equity work, right? I was doing equity work. And I was saying, I'm not going to punish these Black children, this is predominantly Black, that were coming to my office because you suggested that what they did was a violation when all kinds of other kids do those same things and you do not send them to my office. And also what they're doing, it's not that bad. Don't send them back. Or what I would find out was, hey, what's going on? Why did you do that thing? And I would find out they didn't sleep the night before, they didn't eat, or they're, you know, somebody is, the lights are not on, or somebody has been, you know, harming them, or whatever. And I'd be like, oh my God, you don't need a punishment. You need some support. Yeah. And you need, um, I need to get you some help. And I need, like, we got to do some wraparound services here, right? Like, why are we punishing children who are traumatized and need something else? Um, that was my wake up moment, right? And so I'm okay naming my transgressions. I don't know what you would call it. I'm okay naming it because unless we can name how we actually are contributing to the systems, um, none of us is gonna get anywhere. And so I have, to, I have to be really vulnerable in rooms I go in and say, so I've done this and I need to make it okay for you to, to do some reflection and find out what are the ways you also have done this? What are some uncritical things you have perpetuated that have been harmful in the system that have done two things? One, have harmed children of color and two, benefited white children because we don't talk about the second part. We talk about the first. We don't talk about how white children get the benefit of the doubt. So that in 2016, if I may, a little bit more, in 2016, uh, Yale did this, um, study on preschool teachers and disciplining students. And it made a big, made a big splash. Like everybody was talking about it and they used eye tracking technology to see who they were watching and they were watching black children. We, first of all, let me just say this. We didn't need that damn study. I'm going to just say this because we already know they were just trying to prove that it happens at a very early age. So three-year-olds who take a truck in the, in the classroom from another three-year-old is developmentally appropriate, right? <laughs> but they were asked to look for challenging behavior and they only looked for it in the black children. That was the study. Do you know what they messed up on? They didn't ask the right question. They didn't say, what are the behaviors you are missing in the white children who are doing the same exact things in the classroom? Because do you know who's shooting up schools and shooting up theaters right. and shooting up concerts? 
and doing all kinds of terroristic behaviors. Like I'm really worried about white boys who are three years old, who are being ignored throughout their entire school career, who have all kinds of behaviors that is dangerous and is, is very much saying, help me, something is wrong in my life that we're ignoring because we are so focused on the behavior of children of color. Like I'm worried about those white kids too. And I'm worried because we're giving them a pass and they are doing immeasurable harm. And we are not paying attention to that connection right yeah. there. How do you- All right, I gotta take a deep breath. I know, right? You're like, hold on one more thing. I'm like, please don't ever stop. Just keep talking. <laughs> I need to hear my own voice at all the whole rest of this podcast. So white women are dangerous. Does that still hold true for you today? And if so, because I think I would agree with it. Obviously not like every single person, white person is dangerous in every single way, in every single moment, sure. the concept sure. of white women mm -hmm. being, da being dangerous is I think very valid and very true. And I, I had a conversation about this yesterday with two other white women and they were like, don't be mean to yourself. I'm like, no, no, no. Like, is that me as Jill? Although it could be, but, but so I wonder mm. if, if that still holds for you, how it holds for you and how you reconcile that with your racial identity and mm -hmm. your, your mom, like, like how, yeah. how do you, mm -hmm. how does that affect how you see yourself? How does that affect how you see your mom? Mm -hmm. And I'll stop talking. Yeah. So yes, they are still dangerous because we're talking about how culture has actually um, taught them how to be right. What is it that has happened in the dominant culture that has allowed white women uh, the audacity to go up to a child and ask them the questions I've been asked, right? What is it about our culture that has allowed that to happen? And we know it still happens because white women stop children of color, predominantly black children or black people uh, from barbecuing in a park or selling lemonade or sleeping in a dorm room, right? It's why we have the name Karen and everybody gets pissed at me when I say this because they're like, could you please stop perpetuating Karens? And I'm like, could you please stop being Karens? There's a reason we have the name and the reason is not to be funny. It is not to disparage any Karen. Actually, one of my dear friends is Karen who's black actually. It is not to do that. It is because we need a name to put to the person who has the power to kill us. We need to identify who this person is because she is still dangerous. Even if it is not an individual person, yeah. she is dangerous to us. So let me go back and talk a little bit about the, this relationship with my mother. And my mother could be dangerous, absolutely. She absolutely could be. And my mother has all kinds of privileges that I don't. Um, and has done some pretty remarkable things in terms of saying, you know what? Like we couldn't, when I was a teenager, we could not have um, Cosmo or um, teen, teen magazines or Tiger Beat or all of those things. And uh, my mom said, you know why? Because you're not gonna see yourself in that. Mm. And because that's the standard of beauty. And I don't want you to think that you're not beautiful. I don't want you to think that that's what you have to aspire to which is a, right, a remarkable thing for her to do, to oh, say yeah. the world's not going to, like, I don't even want you to think that you're white because the world's not gonna see you that way. Like, you're not gonna show up that way. And 
my relationship with my parents was what shaped me in this whole thing was that when I went out with my dad, I became small and good and precious and did not want any white woman to talk to us. Mm. So I, um, and I know you can't tell because I'm on a screen or on a podcast, but I'm nearly six feet tall. Oh, um, <laughs> and so I tried to be like tiny, like going out with my dad, like don't notice us, don't pay attention, don't see us. Let's just get in and out of this store and let's just go. I don't, I don't want any white lady coming up to me today. And so my dad to this day thinks I am an absolute angel. Like I am just, I'm well-behaved. I'm such a good girl. I'm just, I'm wonderful, right? Now with my mom, I could tell the line because in public, nobody is going to ask a white woman not to discipline a child. Now my dad, right? They would, like CPS would be called immediately. So with my mom, I was an absolute hellion, right? I just tested all the waters with her. And so to this day, my mom believes me to be a hellion. (laughs) And guess what, Jill? Both of them are right because I have different relationships with them and that's okay. And it, it has to be named that race shapes, not just who we are. It has shaped my relationships with white women. Uh, and yes, I do go out in public and I see white women and I can tell, I call them the certain looking white woman. Mm-hmm. Like there's a, there's a white woman look that I'm like, that's the dangerous one. Um, and I look for ones who, who honestly look like you, who I go, if I needed some help in a public space, this is the one I would go to. Um, if there were not other people around, because usually what I'm doing is I'm checking for like, where are the people of color? Like my friend always tells me, he goes, you know, what what I find funny is that anytime a black person gets on a plane, by the time they get to their seat, they can tell you where every other black person on the plane is. And not because they're deliberately like going, okay, 1A and 7F or whatever. It's because we're all of us trying to figure out where it is we belong because so much of American society is saying you don't. And so what we're trying to do is find our connections all the time, all the time, which is just traumatic. So I think it, I think it is traumatic. I think it totally, can I cuss? Sure. It totally fucks us up. Yeah. Okay. It fucks us up and it says, you do not have to trust another human being, which means your humanity is now compromised. So like my humanity gets damaged when I don't trust a white woman when I see her and your humanity gets damaged when I don't trust you or when you think you have the right to ask me if I belong in a public space. There's like, my friend says, there's fuckery for everybody. Like all of us get it. Um, nobody comes out of this unscathed. Um, and how do we, like, how do we navigate that? And some days, Jill, I do it really well. And some days I do it terribly. Some days I'm like, nope, don't want to be around it. I can't handle it. Got, got to get away from this. And some days I'm like, let me just see you as a human being. So let me be vulnerable and let me tell you my experiences. Let me tell you why I'm doing this. Let me tell you why I need this connection. Um, let me tell you that I just like, I'm not getting it right all the time. And also like, I'm not showing up great. So can I just bring all my mess to you and tell you why, why this is? And if I'm lucky, I get someone who says, oh yeah, yeah, show me. Like here are open arms. I am ready to learn along with you. 
Mm -hmm. not from you or not for you or not teach you, but let's do this together. I don't know if that answered your question or not. It, it, I think it did and, and uh, much more. Um, do you feel, so I'm Jewish and I, I have an internalized. Oh, happy Hanukkah. Oh, well, thank you. Um, I, and I'm working through my own internalized stuff with it. Um, particularly my, my, uh, what I felt was my old, like I was alone in my feelings about Israel, Palestine, but evidently I'm not. And there's like a whole group of people like me oh, and I'm yeah. in community with them now, but like, it's internalized. It's like, eh, don't get, like, and, and I'm, so I have to examine that as I'm doing this work in other places. Do you feel that about your own, I mean, you are, you, your own whiteness. Like how did, how does that, how do you process that? Like knowing that, or does that not play in the same because you, like, as your mom said, like you're, the world's not going to see you as white. You know, so one of my daughters is also Jewish. Her dad is Jewish and she observes um, some Jewish traditions. Uh, she's married to a Jewish man. And so, um, um, and of course that's like, as I told you about my own upbringing, I'm just like, great, wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I think to be true, what, what I think to be true is that both the Jewish people and myself, the thing that you and I think have in common is some conditional whiteness. Mm. Like there are some conditions under which I can be white um, and there are some conditions under which I can absolutely not. And you, you too, right? So we cannot deny, for example, that uh, Jewish temples have been targeted mm-hmm. for the last several years, right? Under the last president, we cannot deny that Jewish people as a whole have been horribly misrepresented and talked about and, and that, that, like, we can't deny that. And at the same time, like there is some adjacency, right? Like you can still walk through the world in a way that you can be conditionally white. You can be stopped by a police officer and, and walk away alive, right? And so can I, right? That that's, that's a condition of my, of being white skinned. And I'm going to say something really, really hard and controversial in just a moment. Um, And when I'm with my dad, my, that conditional whiteness goes away, mm. right? Um, the thing that I want to say that is really hard is that it is also really difficult for me and many people in my family and my ancestry to look ourselves in the mirror and not see how whiteness has infiltrated um, or, or how our, our Africanness or Blackness has been raped away. Mm. Like I see what the ancestry has done. I see um, the really, really complicated relationships that people have had um, and the ways in which people have, like I'm, I, I look at some of my ancestors and say, I do not blame you for trying to pass. Like what a horrific um, culture you have had to navigate. What a horrific you know, system or time or, or city or whatever that you have had to navigate. Um, and, and I said this before we started recording, one of my superpowers 
is that because I look the way I do, um, people look at me and think, uh, and I know I've been used as the diversity hire, like in some school systems. I know people have been like, we'll hire Kelly because look at her, like we'll count her as the black one. And so they do that and think that they are getting themselves the, I'm quoting air quotes on this, house Negro. Mm. And they don't know I have solidarity with the field. They don't know that I'm, I'm out here checking for my people. I'm out here saying, I'm gonna do the equity work and you're gonna have no idea. And actually you're gonna be really pissed off once you understand that this is actually equity work. And that is exactly what happened. Like, yeah. I, like it like snuck up on people. They would be like, I, I cannot believe you just did that. I'm like, why? Why wouldn't you? Like, these children look like my father, like my cousins, like my nephews, like all of my family. Like, yeah. why wouldn't you think I would want, to, I wouldn't want to protect them from large systems that have done a lot of harm? Why wouldn't I? Um, so in some ways, um, that whole like, you know, ethnically ambiguous thing has come in handy. Because you can like do the work that you can get away with doing some of the stuff that maybe you wouldn't be able to get away with. Is that, am I? It, yeah. And, and also that's it such, and I say it the way you just said it. And also it's icky to think of it that way. It's really, it's, that's a professional term. It's icky to say, you know what? I also know, and my friend, Karen, the black one <laughs> said to me once, she said, you know, Kelly, in some ways you are white people's safe black person mm. because they think that they can uh, do things, ask you questions, um, you know, act a certain way in front of you until they realize they can't. And, and that safety actually goes away once they go, oh, now I see what she's really all about. Um, and here's where it gets super icky. I know that I can talk to people about issues of race and racism and American history and critical race theory and all of the things that we're not supposed to be talking about. And all, all of those things, I know I can talk to some people and that they will listen to me. White people is who I'm talking about. They will listen to me and they will not listen to someone who's darker than I am. Yeah. I know that. And it is super shitty. Yeah. And I hate it. And, and yet, do I have an obligation? Like, is this a place that I should step into? Uh, since it's a reality, how do I reconcile with it? Like, it's icky. It's icky and gross and messy. And I'm not going to pretend like I have an easy answer for any of that. I'm just going to say that I try to navigate it as best I can. And I don't always do it great. Yeah. But I try. And I try to pass the mic when I can, right? I try like when people ask me questions and I'm like, oh, that's actually not for me. Here you go. That's who you want to talk to right there. Yeah. I, so I, I'm like, so many things I want to ask you. Okay. So... Okay, I'm going to start with critical race theory. <laughs> An easy one. In a conversation yesterday, talking about another conversation where I don't think you you weren't present, but it, I I think you were there when I was talking about the experience. Without I don't mm -hmm. want to name anything that would identify anybody, but sure. um, it the, the the concept of white supremacy culture was brought up, and a, a white woman said, "I don't like that term. It makes me uncomfortable." you're going to lose allies by using that term. Mm -hmm. And 
and not, not seeing how that was centering whiteness and how that was like centering white comfort. And like, so, so that conversation was, was being had yesterday. I was talking to some women who were wonderful white women. Um, and, and they were like, I, I don't like the term critical race theory. Cause I think it's giving Fox news or whoever like ammunition mm. because like, why can't we just call it what it is? Which is what? Well, she was saying, she was saying that we should teach kids about slavery or something. You know what I mean? Like, like, she, I don't even think she was understanding what it was. And I was try, trying to explain, like, it's a, not our job as white people to like de determine whether or not a theory is acceptable. Also like whatever we call it, it's still going to get trashed by the right. Like there's, there's nothing we, we can change everything and make, try to like make it all good, but it's not gonna, it's not gonna work. Like that's, that's the, the name isn't the problem. And yes. if we're focusing on the name, then we're never going to get to what it really is. And like the same way people don't like abolish the police and people right. will say like that name shouldn't be used because it's too, it's divisive. divisive, but like the fact that there were many other iterations of, of the policy that no one ever paid attention to, no white people ever paid attention to, I should say, including myself. Um, before that, that didn't work. We, so I, I just wonder if you could comment, cause you just mentioned mm -hmm. the race theory. No, we're not supposed to talk about that and stuff. So I know you're being tongue in cheek there. <laughs> um, so if you could just talk a little bit about um, your thoughts on I don't know the reaction to it and 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 how you're you're an educator um how you see like the need for that type of education in school and the reaction to it or anything you feel like you want to say about that mm -hmm. and and in particular maybe white people's discomfort with that term or what mm -hmm. they think it means or how they've interpreted it yeah well first i think you responded absolutely appropriately which is that centers white comfort you don't like the term um, you should not like racism more. <laughs> you think that's bad. Mm. Wait until you experience this. Yeah. Um, like, why are you more mad at the title of something than you are at the actual thing, the actual concept, the actual lived experiences of people? Um, and then secondly, before I like roll into it, like what she said about slavery is just such a binary way. Like the United States is so terrible about talking about race it's just black and white that is just it I'm like just completely uh does not acknowledge all kinds of other people of color groups that have done, like so much harm has been done to so many of them um so my response anytime anyone asks me about critical race theory is to say if you are learning crt congratulations for getting into law school well done because that's where it's taught um it is not taught in schools K-12 at all. As a matter of fact, the history in K-12 schools is the opposite of that. It, is, it goes out of its way not to tell the truth. It goes out of its way not to talk about the laws. Like critical race theory is to say the laws have been set up in such a way as to advantage whiteness and disadvantage everyone else. So like, I remember, I remember in school hearing Plessy versus Ferguson, hearing it. And as an adult going, I can't verbalize what that's about. I can't tell you anything. Like, I think it's a transportation thing. I think it's a, some train thing, like some guy got on, like, 
I've had a horrible education on this, right? Like our school systems have not done CRT, have never done CRT, and are actually now regressing to the point of never talking about anything that we have ever done that's been harmful in terms of race or laws that have been established or even talking about, um, uh, well, I'll use Brown versus Board because that's a, that's a really good one to talk about in terms of my dad who was a junior in high school when the uh, decision of Brown v. Board was being finalized. Oh. And also I love telling this story because, you know, Ruby Bridges is like in her sixties. She's not that old. Like she's not that old. Yeah. So my dad was uh, all black schools, all black teachers, principals, his whole entire life. That's all he ever did. And during his junior year, uh, my grandmother said to him, you know, when this court case is all done, what's going to happen is they're going to close your school and they're going to make everybody go to the white schools. And we didn't call them the white schools, right? We just called them schools because that's how dominant culture does. Like dominant culture does not name itself. Mm -hmm. um, you know, white supremacy once, I think it was, can't remember the name of this guy. So I'll find a citation later. I think it was the, the man who's known as son of Baldwin. He said, what, white supremacy wants a lot of things, but it wants nothing more than to remain unnamed. Mm. And so we don't call them white schools, right? But what we hear is things like, how come, you, how come we have to have a, um, a black Miss America. Well, we have a white Miss America. You just never called her that. <laughs> How come we have to have a black fraternity and sorority? Well, you have a white one. You just never called it that. You called it Greek, but you never called it the thing. And so my grandmother was right. That's what we did. And we did not just have black schools in this country at that time. We had Mexican schools. We had Chinese schools. Um, we had all kinds of people of color schools that got shut down after that particular court case. And we shoved everyone into the white school system. And we have not acknowledged that. We have not been honest about that. We have not been honest about the fact that some states decided to shut down their school systems instead of teaching those kids, mm. instead of allowing those children to come in. Like we know what happened in Little Rock. We know what happened to Ruby Bridges. We know what happened in a lot of systems that were violent and horrific to children of color, predominantly black children going into school systems. And we don't, we don't even talk about the 38,000 black teachers and principals who lost their jobs in one year. Yeah. One year that these working professionals that were teachers and principals then became bus drivers or went into completely different jobs. Like we don't, that, like that's part of critical race theory, right? It's a court case that actually affects how we live and how we do life and how a system gets affected. And not just a system in education, but also that overturned a system of transportation. It overturned Plessy. And also we wouldn't have Brown v. Board uh, were it not for the Mexican family that actually started that first. Um, th like the, it is all tied together in all kinds of ways that we are just absolutely, as American educated people, mm -hmm. completely ignorant of unless we go out of our way to learn it. Um, and so, I don't, oh gosh, I just don't, there's so much more to say about it. I, yeah. uh, I need to take another deep breath. I think the, you know, the woman who I was 
talking to, it was sort of like a, in, in a space of white Jewish people learning about yeah. whiteness and Judaism. Like it's, yeah. and, and so she was asking cause she actually wanted to learn not because she was being like, she was sort of like, yeah. I have these thoughts, help me understand them. So she was yeah. asking from a very, I think, well-intentioned way. And also it was sort of like, am, am I taking white, you know, like, am, I don't know. Yes. So, so that was, that was very helpful. And I think that like, she genuinely wants to learn and it's so genuinely ingrained and like, so I think it's so. It's ingrained, upsetting. but here's, here's what I'm also hearing yeah. you say. It's ingrained, but it's also, um, it's also coming from a place of so much comfort that it actually can't even see the light of day for anything else. Yeah. Like Mike, like part of it, part of what is harmful and sorry, I was actually just looking up. I wanted to make sure I named her correctly. Sylvia Mendez, oh, okay. um, who got the presidential medal of freedom. Um, uh, she's a Mexican Puerto Rican, like her court case went to was, was the court case that was like pre Brown v. board of education. Okay. Um, and there's a great children's book on it. <laughs> Everybody go buy it. Um, I think that this idea that I have to be comfortable at all times and everyone has to look out for me at all mm -hmm. times yeah. is so ingrained that that in that conversation that you had, that that couldn't even be seen, right? That it's just like, I can't even, like th the thing she said about, I'm so like, that title doesn't help people. You're not gonna get allies if you do that. It's just like, are, are you serious? Like, you think we're worried about getting out? We don't need allies like that. Yeah. No, thank you. No, thank you. We are, you. we are not worried about you. If you are more upset about language than you are about the violence and murder and, and horrific things that have happened to people in this country, the genocide of the indigenous people in this country, the land that we are still on that does not belong to us. If you are not upset about those things and you are mad about a vocabulary word, you are not checking for me. I don't need, I don't need those. I hate the term allies, but like Kimia, I, I don't know if we've talked about this, our, our mutual friend, mm -hmm. she, she always laughs at me when I say this. I'm like, I hate allies. It's a terrible term. I want an accomplice. Mm -hmm. I want somebody who will help me hide the body. <laughs> That's what I want. Like, I want somebody who will say, like, if I say, hey, Jill, there's a thing that's happening and I can't be the person out in front. I need you to go do that. Like, I need you to be the person that risks for me because I can't risk. Like A, because I don't have the position, I don't have the power, I don't have the microphone, I don't have the platform, I don't have whatever it is, mm -hmm. but you might. So I, those are the accomplices. That's who I need in my life. I want accomplices, right? I don't know if you can see it, but I have um, that Brie Newsome picture back there where she's taken down the Confederate flag. You see that up there? Is that the one on the top shelf? Yeah. I can't make sense of what it is. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. I was not, it was not looking, the um, outline of it didn't look like that from, from that yeah. part. Away. I love that. So I keep that really close to me because of the story that I heard um, uh, Dr. Bettina Love tell one time about how they, how they got that flag down because Brie Newsome apparently like, didn't know how to climb 
like had to learn all of these things and was a part of the co you know collective of people because this was planned right she just didn't one day go i'm gonna climb a pole and take a flag down mm -hmm. um, which is how we tell the story of rosa parks she was tired and she was old and she sat down no or this or homer plessy right on the train he was tired and sat down no he actually hired the person to arrest him because he wanted the case to go to court and mm -hmm. he wanted it to go to the supreme court like people are they're smarter than you think so the story that she tells, which I'm not going to tell nearly as well, is that when she finally got the call to do it, she was with this white man and they were eating and they, whoever called her was just like, today's the day we're going to do it. Come on, you're the person. And so they go to do, they go to take this flag down. And one of the pieces of, of organizing is finding a distraction. So there's a distraction actually going on to get the Capitol Police away from the flag for just a moment. And so mm -hmm. they go away for a second. That allows her and the white man that she's with to get inside the gate so that she can start climbing the pole. So she does. And when the police come back, the police are trying to figure out, oh my gosh, look at this shit. <laughs> we gotta get her down off this pole and are talking about it and say, how do we get her down? I know what we'll do, we'll tase the pole. <gasps> And the white man who's with her immediately takes his hand and puts it on the pole. Cause he knows as an accomplice, they're not gonna do shit to that pole. Yeah. They are not going to shock that white man. That's who I need. Yeah. I want the person who's willing to put your hand on the pole. And you can't put your hand on the pole if you're not inside the gate. And you're not gonna be inside the gate unless you have already been out to breakfast with me because we're planning on doing something that's really revolutionary, right? Like that's who I need. I do not need the people who are still saying, I don't like the words you're using, Kelly. Like, I don't have time for you. I, I, I'm gonna ask you, are you, can you put your hand on the pole for me? If you say no, I'm walking away. I love that. I love that. Yeah, so many things. Okay, so we're like past the time. I want to talk to you forever, but you have a party to go to. <laughs> you have a big and, party to go to. And My son's party. That's so exciting. So yeah, yeah so I, I am I am going to um, uh, very sadly bring this interview to a close. Um, one, okay, a couple possibly short questions. Okay. Where do you recommend- I'll, I'll give short answers then, okay. Um, where do you recommend people- read about the real history of our country? Is there a, a favorite book or source that you recommend for people who want to really get in there? Mm -hmm. That's really a good question. Here, look at me. I'm turning around and looking at my, my bookshelf. Um, <laughs> I have to pull this out. Well, a couple things, right? So, and I think it depends on like who you are. And so I think white people should really read uh, Lies My Teacher Told Me by James Lowen. Who's okay. also writing? Who's also written a book on the sundown towns? I think everybody should figure out where there's what sundown towns there are. I also think um, "Waking Up White" by Debbie Irving is really helpful for white people. Um, I really love this book, "Hands on the Freedom Plow," mm. um, okay. which is um, personal accounts of women um, in SNCC. But I also think that uh, I think Ibram Kendi's first book is fantastic. Stand from the beginning. Yes, yeah, Stand from the Beginning is great if you're looking at Black history. I also think if you're looking at Indigenous and Mexican history, there are, um, there's like a series of books. And, oh, it's 
right out of my head right now. Dang. I'm a terrible guest because I can't remember. You're amazing. <laughs> that's four. That's, I think that's good. And if, if, if you're able to figure it out, I'll put it in the show notes. Okay. Um, and then how do like people find you and um, like learn more about what you do and potentially are you someone that they could hire to do work with their organization and how would they do that? I'm super hard to hire now because um, I got <laughs> snapped up by a medical school. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I have a nonprofit called Being Black at School, I, which is a lot of consulting that I do. Um, that's easy to find. I'm, uh, I've been on, I've been on the internet for 16 years as Mocha Mama, uh, easy to find that way. All kinds of uh, shenanigans I've gotten into with that. I've had a blog for years, a Twitter for a long time. I still don't understand why anybody wants to follow me on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> although I think right now I'm still private because after, um, after the, the, uh, last trial, uh, that came out, there was just a lot of real terrible hate and I just have to protect myself from it once in a while. So I just pull back. Um, but also I work at, you know, I still work for Crossroads Anti-Racism where we do a lot of training, uh, which I think is, I think is phenomenal training. I think everyone should go through it. There's some beginner stuff, like an introduction to systemic racism that's really helpful for people. There's some more in-depth things for people who are ready to like start a team at their institution to really push the work forward. And then there's some advanced coursework that they're starting to, to work on, like um, uh, dismantling white ways. Like they're gonna name it. Like, like that's not for everyone. Like everyone's not ready, like your friends who don't like those words, they're not ready for that. Send them to the intro, that's what they can do. And then we're gonna work our way up. Um, okay, thank you. Those are great recommendations. and. Um... And thank you for sharing how to find you. Um, Kelly, thank you so much for being here and uh, sharing your story and um, just being every bit who you are um, is just all of the, all the good things. So thank you so much. Thanks, Jill. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener, MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.